Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Hey. Back again. We're just deep in this shit. Episode four of Anti-Fragile by the great Nassim Taleb, helped along in spirit, body, and mind by Mark Ripito. We have been going in. If you haven't listened to the other episodes, like, actually go listen to them. Do it. It's like a, it's a series, you know? You don't watch a, you don't watch episode seven of, I don't know, Real Housewives of whatever. Atlanta. Atlanta, you watch episode one and then you get to seven. So it ain't going to make any sense, but here we go. Let's go. So Mr. Taleb is a learned doctor and he loves to use metaphors and stories and like the end of the book actually ended like he drew this rhetorical device between these characters he made up to illustrate his point. He's genius. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to touch on his rhetorical device, the characters he created to illustrate his point, fat Tony and Nero. And these are fake people that are designed to show you how maybe one should act. And so he brings up fat Tony and uh, he's just basically this street smart fat trader who makes money following Taleb's principles. And uh, while most people around them were running around fighting the different varieties of unsuccess, Nero and Fat Tony had this in common. And Nero is basically like the pencil-necked philosopher version of Fat Tony who also follows Taleb's principles because, you know, heaven forbid you write this simply, Mr. Taleb. They were both terrified of boredom, particularly the prospect of waking up early with an empty day ahead. So they do lunch every now and then. Nero lived a life of mixed asceticism, going to bed at nine o'clock, sometimes even earlier in the winter. He tried to leave parties when the effect of alcohol made people start talking to strangers. Nero preferred to conduct his activities by daylight, trying to wake up in the morning with the sun's rays. He spent his time ordering books from booksellers on the web and very often reading them. But like trailer parks and crystal meth, they became friends. After the crisis of 2008, it became clear what the two fellows had in common. They were predicting a sucker's fragility crisis. What had gotten them together was that they both had been convinced that a crisis of such magnitude with a snowballing destruction of the modern economic system in a way and on a scale never seen before was bound to happen simply because there were suckers. But our two characters came from two entirely different schools of thought. Fat Tony believed the nerds, administrators, mostly bankers, were the ultimate suckers. And what's more, he believed that collectively they were even bigger suckers than they were individually. And he had a natural ability to detect these suckers before they fell apart. Fat Tony derived his income from that activity while leading, as we saw, a life of leisure. Nero's interests were similar to Tony's, except dressed up in intellectual traditions. To Nero, a system built on illusions of understanding probability is bound to collapse. 
by betting against fragility. They were both anti-fragile. So Tony made a bundle from the crisis in the high eight to low nine figures. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Everything other than a bundle for Tony is talk. Nero made a bit, much less than Tony, but he was satisfied. For Nero, lunch with Tony was like drinking water after an episode of Thirst. It brought immediate relief to realize that he was either not crazy or at least not alone in being crazy. So they would get together and commiserate about vampirism. They were beer storming. They were beer storming because neither of them believed in predictions, but they both made big bucks predicting that some people, the predictors, would go bust. Isn't that paradoxical? While Fat Tony, who did not believe in predictions, got rich from prediction. This is if you listen to the last episode of this podcast, we we talked about a metaphor of accuracy and precision, and I think there is something to saying, well, unfortunately, the way the world works, you can't precisely predict what will happen, but you can accurately know that some bad event will occur and you can predict that those people who rely on predictions are taking more risk and will go bust because think about it if Taleb's statement ain't nobody can predict shit is true then the people who are relying the most on predictions are by necessity the most fragile So an overconfident pilot will eventually crash the plane. So you can't predict when the plane's going to crash. But if you know that this pilot's shotgunning beers before the flight, maybe you bet against him. And this is what Fat Tony did. His model was quite simple. He would just identify fragilities. He would make a bet on the collapse of the fragile unit. He would lecture Nero and trade insults with him about sociocultural matters. He would react to Nero's jabs at New Jersey life. Then he would collect big after the collapse. Then he would have lunch. What a baller. And Seneca agrees. Now, there's a, there's a lot. Like, Taleb just, you know, he got fuck you money. He retired to an attic and he just studied philosophy and he's just a genius. Um, so we're not going to go super deep into stoicism. But Taleb brings up a good example of there's this, there's this philosophy called stoicism which it's not what it sounds like which is like don't have emotions it's closer to Jocko's good idea where there's a book called the obstacles is the way that is a decent book to read but it's basically um anything that happens to you is an opportunity and not like a stupid ass like oh positive thinking like actually an opportunity so i hurt my back that is actually truly an opportunity for me to train my mental toughness and be- become a more well-rounded person. And so Seneca, some some philosopher guy, uh, he writes all about this. And success brings an asymmetry. Now you have a lot more to lose than to, the, to, than to gain. You are hence fragile. And Seneca, he did the thought experiment that possessions made us worry about the downside, thus acting as a punishment because we would depend on them. All downside, no upside. Even more, depending on circumstances, rather than the emotions that arise from circumstances, induces a form of slavery. So, basically, rephrasing in modern terms, uh, like take a situation where you have a lot to lose and a little to gain, 
if an additional quantity of wealth, say a thousand Phoenician shekels, would not benefit you, but you would feel great harm from the loss of an equivalent amount, you have an asymmetry, and it is not a good one. You are fragile. So Seneca, uh, he did this practical method where you basically just like go through the mental exercise of you've lost all your possessions. And um, Tim Ferriss is a big fan of this, like just fear setting. So just uh, what is, imagine the worst case happens. So imagine, you know, my podcast, uh, the CEO of our company hates it and hates it so much that he decides that I get it off the air and fire him. Okay, I accept that. What would I do? Well, I could just go get another job at 50K somewhere. And that's, it's okay, so cool. So I accept the worst thing happens and it removes that existential fear. This is directly related to the anti-fragile strategy, which is not avoiding bad things. It's not how to plan and time time your actions so you avoid bad things. It is how do we prepare so that if bad things happen, it's fine. Totally. Because yeah. it's um, seen this way. Stoicism is about the domestication, not necessarily the elimination of emotions related to bad things. So if you know if if you can handle any setback and you just treat it as good, that's the optimal attitude. You know, that's an anti-fragile attitude. I, I'd almost go further and say that that's something that you can, that's a strategy that you can get kind of aggressive with. For example, uh, you know, I, I've done a lot of um, either speaking or performing music in my day, and a lot of people are very nervous about performing in front of other people. Luckily for me, I have totally screwed up in front of a lot of people multiple times. And so I know what it feels like to do that. So now, it, 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 honestly, it's hard for me to get nervous, like stage fright. It's, it's tough for me to do that because I realize what screwing up and embarrassment in front of a crowd feels like. And I've done it so much that it's like you realize that it's not terrible. You still wake up the next day and every, your food still tastes the same. You still do the same things every day. Like it doesn't change anything. And so it's sort of like you don't try to avoid it. You just embrace it fully. Yeah. And, and Mr. Taleb echoes that. And he says, if you have nothing to lose, then it is all gain. Right. Yeah. Actually, that's how I feel. I'm like, my base case is that I make a fool of myself. And now every yeah, time and I, you're like, I am totally fine if I go up and I just stand there for four minutes with nothing to say and I turn bright red. And then my pants fall down and then I walk away. Yeah. Like that's. And they laugh at your dick. Yeah. And they laugh. Everyone, the whole crowd just bursts out laughing at it. And it's like, once you can accept that, you're invincible. I had this, actually, I have this story really quickly. Go. I was uh, driving, I, did, I commuted for a while in college and saved that cash money on the uh, rent room and board. You know, you know what I'm saying? Um, one time, this is a little bit, uh, this is a little bit inappropriate. So just all the children, please turn this off. Yeah. Um, don't say cunt either. Go on. Don't do that. Um, I was driving as about 30 minute drive to campus in college and about 25 minutes in, I started feeling severe gastrointestinal Did you distress. Shit your car? I got, I pulled into the parking garage and as I was pulling into it, I unloaded a horrible, uncontrollable, by the way, amount of shit into my pants. Oh no. Like, dude, it, I would have at least like found like a cup. No, no. It was, it was one of those things where it was gradually and then suddenly, yeah. like I felt like I could hold it. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I can't mm. like, it's like, it was like, I'm going to hold it. I'm going to hold it. Oh my God. I'm sh I'm currently sh <laughs> like it went from zero to 60 immediately. So, but 
that was pretty funny. I'm like laughing to myself and I like email my professor like, hey, I think I'm sick. I can't make it to class. Really, I'm just in the parking lot, just like covered in horrible things. Um, but I had this serene feeling driving home where I was like, there's nothing that could happen to me right now that would make me embarrassed because I've already shit my pants. Yeah. Like I, that's a weird thing, but I can't tell you. Like, I felt this weird sense of peace. I'm like, what? what can anyone say now? Why didn't you just shit in the street like an adult? I couldn't. It was like I can hold it, and then the next second, I noticed that I was shitting. Oh, it was. There was no choice in the yeah. matter. I believe what that is called is you flew too close to the sun. I did, and it, yeah. Otherwise, obviously, I would have done that. But it was like I just noticed that it was happening, and so. Um, but Taleb would say you are anti-fragile. It, yeah, on that drive home, nothing could bother me. There was zero anyone could say to me that I'd be like, oh, that hurts my feelings. It's like, yeah, anyway. Yeah, because if you have more upside than downside. Completely. Then you uh, you may actually be harmed from a lack of volatility stressors. <laughs> I wish someone would say something to me so I could get my mind off of the fact that I just shit my pants. Yeah. Now, we're going to move on. Sorry. From shit. Sorry. It's fine. I've told the story on this podcast of where I uh, almost shit myself uh, in downtown Indianapolis, but yeah. my butchies, they, they I, saved the day. I did in downtown Indianapolis. <sighs> this is clearly going well. Anyway. Um, so what do we do? So how do we put this into practice? Well, we talked about this on the Black Swan, but we are about to get into the fucking most important, well, one of the most important parts, the barbell strategy. I figured this out, by the way. Last podcast that we talked about this. I feel like I had a bad answer, but I think I figured it out. Okay. Do you want to tell me? Yes. So the way we left it was in the last podcast, we kind of left it with you saying something to the effect of, uh, I don't know if this is exactly right. And maybe maybe real quick, I'm just going to bring everyone Go. up to speed. Same so with the barbell so strategy. The barbell strategy is um, everybody falls into this trap of like, I'm going to buy medium risk stocks, but even more broadly than that, like everybody, put, everybody puts all their eggs into the medium risk basket. So like, You've on got, average, it'll be fine. On average, it'll be fine. But what Taleb says is that the world doesn't work in average, is dumbass. And so what you need to do is you need to, on the left side of the barbell, you need to remove your risk of ruin. So you need to pay off your house. You need to have solar panels. You need to be off the grid. You need to have stored food. You need to have two guns, cows. ammo, two cows. And on the right, you need to, oh, and a lot of cash. And then on the right side, you need to have options, but not like, options like you go buy them and we'll talk way deeper about this but like non-lottery tickets so like things that cost you a little bit but have the potential to go a thousand x so you know you email or go to zero or go to zero yeah it's where you collect them maybe they go to zero but like you email the you know the ceo of salesforce and you have a really compelling thing Mark Benioff. yeah and then you get you get hired or something and uh you know that's just an example of like what did it cost you well it cost you an email and maybe an interview or whatever but what was the benefit? Well, a whole new world. So that's the barbell strategy. We're going to dive deeper, but tell me your tell me what you realized. Let me let me um, just clarify that a little bit. Meaning, ninety percent, according to him, Taleb is in hyper conservative preservation mode, and like ten percent is in speculative, low probability but high high reward. Uh, investments and, and it could be formal investments but it could also be like uh a podcast or like start your own yes. business or like yes. you know you get you write a book or something exactly totally right 
And so I think we left this with Troy saying, I don't know. I'm thinking more something like take 10% of your assets, put it into hyper conservative things, 80% just do the normal thing. And then 10% on the other side have potential huge upside, low, you know, low probability. Especially because I'm so young and my time horizon is like 30 years. Yes. And but I don't want to miss out on compound interest. That was yes, my thought process. But I think that what Taleb is saying is that either way, you probably end up with like a 7% return annualized. Whichever, either one of those strategies, like the 10, 80, 10, or the 90 conservative, 10% hyper risky. You end up with like a 7% return anyway, except with the 10, 80, 10, you have this medium risk that could go drop by 60% and now you're, or 50% and now you just lost 40% of your portfolio. So it's like you end up with the same returns, but you lopped off a tail risk for most of your portfolio going down. I think that's reasonably fair. I think that- That's what he was saying. Yeah. I think that that totally applies if you're buying individual stocks. I think it applies a little less if you're buying indexes of the market, because like if the whole market is getting lopped off, then- That happened. Yeah. Then like, you know, you've got 30 years to recover, but- that's a good uh, a good point. As we as we jump into what I have affectionately named barbell, here we fucking go. The barbell or the bimodal strategy is a way to achieve anti-fragility and move to the right side of the triad. So the first step towards anti-fragility consists in first decreasing downside rather than increasing upside. And this is crazy. And you brought this up before on po- on the Black Swan podcast. Get a non-scalable job first. Yes. So we need to talk about this, but let me finish this. So rather than increasing upside, that is by lowering exposure to negative black swans and letting natural anti-fragility work by itself. So, you know, I, I think that you talked about there's a sequence of this shit. So yes. the first step is just try to carve out your dragon lair and not be poor. So um, you know, mitigating fragility is not an option, but a requirement. And it, it may sound obvious, he says, but the point seems to be missed because fragility is punishing like a terminal disease. You know, a package doesn't break under adverse conditions, then manage, manage to fix itself when proper conditions are restored. Fragility has a ratchet-like property, the, irreser- the irreversibility of damage. What matters is the route taken, the order of events, not just the destination what scientists call the path dependent property. This is the idea of do a non-scalable job first, all caps, bold, bro, you're a genius because not having any money at all is very fucking fragile. Yeah, the, the what's more important, we're all playing this game, right? This a game of trying to save and move forward in our life, but the 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 prerequisite for all of that is that you're in the game. Yeah. So think about Monopoly. It's like you can make money, you can lose money, you can have your money stay the same. But if you lose all of your money, you're not even in the game anymore. Mm-hmm. You're just done. And that can happen also in your real life. If you have zero money, then you go bankrupt and then you get eaten by wolves. Then what, you're done. What? How's, what? How, what? what? <laughs> you're homeless and then you're staying in the woods and then wolves eat you. Um and so, yes. but meaning that, you know, uh, completely metaphorical, wolves. metaphorical, wolves. but the point being is the first thing you need to take care of is not blowing up completely. And so like not having zero or, or even worse than zero, having no money and massive debt, 
that's like worst possible case scenario. So the reason the sequence matters is because if you blow up, you can't keep playing, but you can make money and then blow up. But it, just the point being is the first problem you have is to not blow up. And that's exactly right. And I think that people fall into this trap of efficiency. So yes. efficiency on its own is like kind of meaningless because, you know, if if a gambler, like if you're if you're playing poker and, you know, one out of a thousand hands, mm. you get a brain aneurysm and you die. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but what you but you can what you can do is you can offset that risk by um, you know, spending $50,000 somehow. Then like you would be a fucking idiot even though on average, you know, you could probably play for 6 years and not have a brain aneurysm, but what you first need to do is pay the 50 grand, remove that shit off the table, yes, and then grow. then start. Because it doesn't matter what if you it doesn't matter if you oh, I'm 20 grand up. Like I'm I got 20 grand of it's profits. Like, well, that's cool. And then you have a brain aneurysm and you die. So yeah. it was like what was the point? And so Taleb talks about this concept called ergodicity, which is such a complicated and abstract concept that I don't even want to go into and it and it, I still don't fully understand it, but you can think of like Russian roulette as a great example. So so think oh, about this, the difference sorry. between um, saying, hey, if, you know, a thousand people all play Russian roulette on average, the majority of them, five out of six, you know, of the people are fine playing that. But it, it switches when you look at an individual and say, what if a, a one person plays Russian roulette a thousand times? They're guaranteed yeah. to be dead. So when we look at investments, a lot of times we're looking at the average amongst multiple, like a lot of people. But that doesn't matter that's the wrong way to think about yourself individually. The first thing you need to do as an individual is say, prevent complete utter catastrophe. So what does that mean practically? My thought, this is just now, I think I'm, I might be going away from Taleb a little bit, but my personal take on that is, and this is not investment advice. This is not investment advice, but uh, my version of what's my version of risk management. And this is exactly what I've done. Uh, first things first, pay off all debts, and have some sort of emergency fund as fast as humanly possible with a low risk, high probability that it works, boring ass job. Like that yeah. you're, that's gonna work. Cause then like worst case, oh shit. Okay, my car blew up. Yeah. If you, I go buy another car. Yeah, if you're worst case- And I have predictable income. If you, if you just have made it so that your worst case scenario is that you have zero debt and you have an emergency fund. Because it doesn't matter how optimized your investment portfolio is. Right. If you and your wife lose your job and within three months you're underwater and within six months you have to dip into your 401k, that fragility needs to right. be taken care of first. Absolutely. And then my my personal take on this, once you cover the basis of the the you know the left side of things, the, the, the risk the dragon of layer is carved out and a once, thousand year storm still you'd have your your house of gold once that is taken care of actually then i think that you should go the other way and go as soon as possible take massive risk that has a hundred x upside potential because every year that goes by you're less able to do that so i think first super boring like literally just like lay brick to make some money like manual labor or whatever you need to do to pay off debt and get an emergency fund then Hail Marys constantly. For I, I don't know. I would say like, I'd say your principle is consistent with Taleb. However, the problem in my mind is that it's really, really hard to 100x money. And so... Um, but you never have a better chance 
to take that. You're never in a better position to take those chances than now. But why would, why would you've carved out your dragon lair? So worst case, you're never going to be poor. Yes. And you buy an index fund, which is idiot proof. And like, yeah, maybe there's some, maybe some crazy shit happens to it, but like you accept that risk and you know that the probability that that over time is going to go up is extremely high. And the probability that you have some sort of competitive advantage to hundred X your money is pretty low. Yeah. So like, unless you are you and you have like inside, not insider knowledge, but like, you know, a competitive advantage in crypto or whatever, um, I'd say the average person shouldn't go trying to like, you know, sniff the air and buy uh, AMC stock because they read about it on Reddit. But it might be start a business that you don't know if it's going to work. It might be do something other uh, risky in another way. So you're way. saying things. Okay. So I'm, 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 I am, I'm going to kill myself. I am not being domain specific. So I'm honing in on the, the investment assets, but you're talking about the risk of as life. a concept. Yes. And, and, and I think that he would say, Taleb would say that, yes, a, a, a fine strategy is to do, look, one of your buckets is an ETF. Buy the S&P 500 dollar cost average your life away and, and go for it. It's probably going to work. The point is, it's just asymmetric. It's got limited upside. It's got a certain amount of upside and massive downside. But you spent, but if you have 10 buckets or seven buckets, we'll say, and, and one of them is a diversified portfolio of ETFs yes. just so you take advantage of compound interest. But then you have another bucket, which is a business. You have another yes. bucket, you're writing a book. You yes. have another bucket, you're buying Bitcoin. Yes. You have another bucket, you're doing angel investing. Yes. You're saying after you've carved out your dragon layer, you need to carve out the opposite end. Ah, I think that is a, a good thing. But but you can't do it the other way around. Right. You because, can't, yeah. because even if you do it the other way around, like, I mean, you can do it the other way around and some people do and then they get like survivorship bias. And then your business fails and then you go bankrupt. And you're, or, <laughs> you know, you, you just get so lucky and yeah. you're like the graphic designer for Facebook. Hey, lucky is great. And then, you know, you all of a sudden have $50 million of Facebook stock. You're like, cool. I have used a cheat code. But how many rich people have also gone bust because they got lucky like that? Like, think about like, oh, yeah, MC Hammer has a hit, gets $20 million. He's rich as hell and then ends up bankrupt. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's totally right. It's like the it's like the talented athletes who don't work hard. Oh my god, athletes are a real problem. But yeah, so that's my take on that. Take low low risks, super high probability that's going to work. Take care of your left side of your barbell, then work on the other side. Massive hundred x potential risks. That's what I think. And then slowly taper your risks from from there every year that goes by. I believe Mr. Taleb would agree with you, and he yeah. says he'd probably just be like, "Fuck you." Yeah, yeah, he probably would. Uh, you know, I emailed him and I CC'd you. And Did he respond? No. <laughs> like he cites all these fucking people in his uh, in his fucking books. Like, oh, you know, I, I met this mathematician. I met this author. They were all so kind. And I've tweeted at him 15 times. I've emailed him. The only time I got a like on the tweet was when I tweeted him. He's like, day 14 of COVID. And I'm like, that seems interesting. I thought yours and Mark Ripto's blood would uh, infect COVID, not the other way around. Wait, he liked your tweet? So he liked my tweet. That's the only thing. Dude, that's an honor. Maybe. That is like, an I'm honor. Ins I'm insulted. What are you talking about? I got his little autoresponder that's like, here's the 800 reasons why I'm not going to help you. Dude, being rejected by Nassim Taleb is an honor, first of all. But the fact that you got a like is okay. like, Maybe that's you're right. amazing. 
No, you're right. Okay, so as we continue this exploration of barbells, let's think about how this might work in the real world. So let's take literature. And this is where he's, you know, not to pat himself on the back or anything, he says, take literature, the most uncompromising, most speculative, most demanding, and riskiest of all careers. Not like, oh, hey, look, that's a coincidence. You're in literature, Mr. Taleb. Not to pat yourself on the back or anything. But if we look at the French, the French tradition, there's a tradition with French and European literary writers, an anxiety-free profession of civil servant with few intellectual demands and high job security, and then do their writing on the side and compare that to the American tradition where they tend to become a member of the media or academics, which makes them prisoners of a system and corrupts their writing. And in the case of research academics, makes them live under continuous anxiety, pressures, and indeed severe bastardization of the soul. Dude, every line you write under someone else's standards, like a prostitute, kills a corresponding segment deep inside. I don't even understand how he thought he could get away with including like a prostitute in that sentence. That's completely unrelated. What the hell? Well, dude, this is parallels my life. Yeah. So I went to school for music. I really much enjoy it. It's completely irrational, just something that I like. And I was a musician for a while, but then I realized one day that if you want to make a living, you have to completely basically do what other people tell you to do better than other people. And so I I realized that if there's this trade-off of like fairly guaranteed income but complete lack of control or zero guarantee of income and complete control. And so that was that trade-off. I noticed that early. And my choice was I may, I'm, I'm opting out of the game. I don't want to play this game. I need a different way to make money because the thought, the thought of playing music but only what other people tell me to do is worse than never making money from music and playing whatever I want. Right. Like I would, if I had to, if I had to, do this podcast like according to the conventional wisdom of office culture your boss is emailing you right now like sorry troy you went a little bit long on that one you're gonna need to tone it down a little yeah i i I just send him send him well my boss is super cool uh so she probably just be on board but like i mean a different boss different boss podcast boss Mm, yeah yeah i'd probably just send a personalized video with the effort back to them yes okay so that's crazy and and i think that concept is is super duper helpful because you know on one end we remove the risk of ruin which actually by definition if you're removing the risk of ruin you're doing the barbell strategy you know you can you can make that other right side you can grow that and grow that and grow that but once you've removed your risk of ruin you're by definition barbell even if your upside is you know a little bit limited this feels like a cliched example but it's like None of the details of your house matter if your foundation is shit. Yeah. Zero of the details. Doesn't matter. The curtains don't matter. The type of paint, the flooring. Especially if you're selling it. Especially. Yeah, that's exactly right. The type of roof. None of it. Like you can probably live in it. You got to step over a a crack. Yeah. For now until it collapses. And so it's like that this is the same analogy, meaning like. Before you take care of the whole left side of your risk curve, meaning like blow up and catastrophe, nothing matters. Yeah. And he says, he clarifies and agrees with us that the barbell does not need to be in the form of investment in inflation protected cash and the rest in speculative securities. Anything that removes the risk of ruin and satisfies those 
fragile and anti-fragile characteristics will get us to a barbell. Would you like to talk about your compound that you're building right now, Mr. Hollis? Yeah. It's interesting. My, my first bullet is it could be being a prepper. So, you know. <laughs> Everyone's a prepper. This is my contention. Everyone's a prepper, just some people are bad at it. That's Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, in my mind, I have a, I have a two, levels, two levels away redneck friend. Um, but he, he's, uh, he's good friends with my redneck friend, and thus I'm double redneck friend with him. But um, he and I went bear hunting together, and we were in a car for 19 hours. And I was just like, just introduce me to your redneck ways, my friend. And he's like, I don't have any of that, you know, that pansy-ass shit like hot water. And I'm like, oh, my God. Damn. Yeah, and he's just like 400 pounds and the best custom knife maker in, in the United States, actually. Um, he's insane. But we were talking, and we agreed a lot on prepper stuff because he's he's a prepper. But in my mind... I look at it as like, um, I'm going to assume for the vast majority of the parallel universes for the next 50 years, that society is not going to crumble. And so I get that we're kind of doing a, doing an assumption that that is the case. And so I participate in the greater market. I have a mortgage, I have, you know, ETFs, I have cash, whatever, but I also pay down my house. I'm eventually, you know, I live on 20, 28 acres. Um, all the meat I eat is basically I hunted or butchered. I have a deep freezer. Um, I've got a wood burning stove that heats the house. Um, you know, eventually going to have solar with battery backup. I got a pond. So worst case, like I can, well. I can drink some fucking pond water. I got a well. Yeah. I hopefully can just, you know, make that solar first. So I don't have to drink the nasty pond water. But um, in my mind, I, I look at it as like, I'm going to assume that the world is going to continue as business as usual, hopefully, but I'm going to carve out my dragon layer. I'm going to carve out my compound so that if the apocalypse did happen, um, I would be okay. I, I think, yeah, I, I think that's a smart move. Actually, I think I want to take it out of the extreme a little bit. I think that does it a little bit of a disservice. I will make fun of preppers who prepare for a specific disaster. Mm. I think they're stupid and they're Cause, crazy. Cause like double redneck friend, he doesn't believe in health insurance. He doesn't believe in a mortgage. Sure. He doesn't believe in I mean, a bank account. He okay. doesn't believe in investments. And like, I can understand his perspective, but I feel like, I feel like in my mind, he's barbelled so hard on the left that he's, he's not, ha- he doesn't have any. He'll have like right. no return. Right. Yeah. But, but it's like, he's not even a barbell. He's just like a, a clump. Yeah. He's just a rock. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I will make fun of preppers who who prep for only prep because they think the the electric grid is going to go down. That's the disaster they're going to think they think is going to happen, and that's what they spend their life preparing for. Because I'm like, the likelihood of you knowing exactly which disaster is going to happen to you is just stupid low. Yeah. But if you showed me a prepper that was like, "Hey, man, I don't know what's going to happen, but look." Over the next 50 years, what's the likelihood that some crazy shit happens? Pretty high. Right. Like how if you compared the fragility of somebody who lived, had had farm animals, who lived on enough land that they could just eat, you know, like cows can just basically like they're unkillable, um, who had, cool. had chickens, who had eggs, who had completely paid off house, not that I do, but that's like the goal, who has is completely off the grid. Um, and has food for six months 
and enough guns to be dangerous. Um, to be a problem. To be, yeah, you know, just to, to fight for freedom and justice, as the kids these days say. Um, and then you compare that to somebody who... Manhattan apartment. Exactly. Like, what are the shocks that the that the person living on the compound could handle compared to what are the shocks that someone in the Manhattan apartment could handle? And it's, it's, it's not even a comparison. I think this is a great segue into optionality because... because one way you could prepare is to say, look, the financial advisor is going to tell you to have a certain ca- amount of cash on hand as a percentage of your portfolio. I, and I think Troy, and I think Mr. Taleb, and I think it'd be smart to have a much larger cash position than might be optimal because cash doesn't solve one problem. Cash solves a lot of problems. So you don't have to predict what's going to happen. You can just be prepared for a lot of issues that could come up. Yeah. I think it's just, it's a delicate dance too because- I do believe not ninety percent. I do cash. believe in compound interest. No one doesn't. I'm just saying uh, you could have great compound interest and no cash, and then all of that gets you have to sell all of it to solve a problem. Now that's truth. Um, great segue. We are going to jump into the section, and we're we're nearing. We got we got two more huge ideas that we need to just just wade through, and then we're going to reach the conclusion by Mr. Taleb. We're gonna we're gonna go first. And we're going to talk about options and why they should blow your fucking mind. And then we're going to talk about linearity and non-linearity. This is the really the punchline of this whole series here. This, yeah. this podcast series. This is what you listened for. That's right. And if you've made it this far, thank you. Congratulations. Leave a review on iTunes. And, and I will be so proud if you can get the review taken down because it's so offensive. Here we go. Now, we get into innovation. The concept of options and optionality how to enter the impenetrable and completely dominate it to conquer it. And he goes on this long waxing narrative about how Aristotle is an idiot. Um, But Aristotle's whole point, his entire heritage of thinking was grounded in the sentence. An agent does not move except out of intention for an end. And that is where the most pervasive human error lies compounded by two or more centuries of the illusion of unconditional scientific understanding this error is also the most fragilizing one. So imagine being Taleb and just be and having the the balls, the, and the audacity air, to be like, oh, Aristotle. Yeah, everything you thought was stupid. Yeah, those those two strong, strong men that are just weirdly <laughs> on my second monitor, uh, Mark staring R- at us. Mark Ripper, just giving us just incorrigible looks. God. They would both have the balls to call it Aristotle. That he does. The theological fallacy. So let us call the theological fallacy the illusion that you know exactly where you're going and that and that you knew exactly where you were going in the past and that others have succeeded in the past by knowing where they were going. The rational flaneur, which he's named himself, much like if you listen to the Hagakure episode, we all want to be Kusimonos. He's named himself a flaneur, which is, I don't know, some fucking French... French Mr. Taleb, whatever, um, is somebody who, unlike a tourist, makes a decision at every step to revise his schedule so he can imbibe things based on new information. The flaneur is not a prisoner of a plan. The plan, the highly scheduled, tightly scheduled vacation, 
is fragile. And the flaneur is anti-fragile, meaning that if his plan gets messed up, a flaneur, guess what? Didn't have a plan anyway, so not a problem. Yeah, but you just go pound shots in the local local tavern. Exactly. That's what he was going to do anyway. But if he notices a cool opportunity, he can go do that, meaning he's got upside and no downside. The error of thinking you know exactly where you're going and assuming that you know today what your preferences will be tomorrow has an associated one. It is the illusion of thinking that others, too, know where they are going and that they would tell you what they want if you just asked them. Never ask people what they want or where they want to go or where they think they should go or worse, what they think they will desire tomorrow. Steve Jobs was specifically good because he distrusted market research and focus groups and those those based on asking people what they want and followed his own imagination. Imagination. His modus was that people don't know what they want until you provide them with it. So, you, go ahead. So I I have a personality trait where if I hear someone smart tell me something like, hey, Jordy, you should go do X, Y, and Z. I don't know why, but my initial reaction, I feel like it's just part of my biology. My initial reaction is like, yeah, but like, what do you know? Like, I, like maybe not. Like, I don't know about that. I just have a skeptical bias. And then what I do is I go and live my life and do a bunch of things. Luckily, I do a lot of things. And then I stumble and fall and hurt my skin, my knee a lot. And then I go, oh, actually, you know what? That person had a great point. I should listen to that person. Dude, that's the story of my fucking life. That's that's what I do. And so um, what was I going to say? Oh, this whole like people don't know what they want. I completely questioned that like a few years ago. I was like, what are you talking about? Teleology is the basis of all human action. We have an end. We act to achieve those ends. And that's how everything is made. I completely thought that. That was my mindset. And then I started working as a videographer. And what I have discovered just just um, empirically, meaning like just through sheer trial and error and iterations and reps of making videos for people, working with clients, if you ask people what they want, they have no freaking clue. If you're like, what kind of video do you want? Like, well, how do you I want, just this want to one look? that makes it look like I got a big dick? Yeah, they're like, make a good one. Like, I don't know, something cool. Or they'll give you some example and you're just sitting there looking at them like, dude, that's going to look stupid. What I have learned just through sheer frustration and trial and error, the best way to go about that is to go, okay, Mr. or Mrs. Client, you want a video. Here's three examples of something I can make you. Which one is the closest? And then it's super easy for them to pick one. It is much smarter to pick out of options that you've created for someone than to ask them what they want. And they are happier picking something you make for them than making it up themselves. This is totally right. No one knows what they want. It's true. Optionality will take us many places, but at the core, an option is what makes you anti-fragile and allows you to benefit from the positive side of uncertainty without a corresponding serious harm from the negative side. Now, we've got an insane ancient example. So again, dude, he's pooping on Aristotle, but an anecdote appears. How dare he? <sighs> dude, he doesn't care. The balls is this guy. He's got fuck you money, man. And anecdote appears in Aristotle's politics concerning the pre-Socratic philosopher and mathematician Thales. Thales. I don't know how to pronounce it. We'll Thales. Call, I'm calling him Thales. Cool. So this story, covering barely half a page, expresses both anti-fragility and how Aristotle's an idiot and introduces us to optionality. The remarkable aspect of this story is that Aristotle, arguably the most influential thinker of all time, 
got the central point of his own anecdote exactly backwards. Amazing. I mean, <laughs> just 7,000 pound nuts on this man. <laughs> to let does it go fuck. I'm not saying this to denigrate the great Aristotle. Okay. <laughs> okay, man, whatever. It's like, hey, you're really ugly. But I'm, I'm not saying this to hurt your feelings. It's just the truth. But everything you've ever thought is wrong. Yeah. But to show that intelligence makes you discount anti-fragility and ignore the power of optionality. So Thales was a philosopher, but he was characteristically impecunious, which basically I had to Google that, so don't worry. Uh, it means not rich as hell. Um, he got tired of his buddies with more transactional lives hinting at him that, oh, while you're eating gruel over there, little buddy, I'll be eating olives. And he said, fuck it. He put a down payment on the seasonal use of every olive press in the vicinity of these fucking places, which he got at low rent. Then the harvest turned out to be extremely bountiful. There was a huge demand for olive presses. So he released the owners of olive presses on his own terms, building a substantial fortune in the process. Then he went back to philosophizing. So what that basically means is he's like, hey, let's say there's 10 olive presses. He's like, hey, I'll give you, I'll give you each like 400 bucks. And um, if I want to do this olive press, like if I, if I wanna have full access for this whole season and produce everything using your olive press, you have to let me. Uh, but here's 400 bucks, but I might not. I might just decide not to. And if I decide not to, then you just make 400 bucks. And the olive press owners are like, okay. And then it turns out to be like record harvest. And so he's like, you know, bitch, I don't want to like run a business or anything. How about this? I'll sell you back the right to use your olive press for $8,000. And they're, you know, they're seeing, they're seeing dollar signs or Greek dollar signs or whatever it was. And so they're like, fine, cool. And then they, you know, buy back for $8,000 and he makes 80 grand. So that was a great example of an asymmetrical bet where his downs, his max downside was his l l small amount of money that he invested his max. So that if everything went wrong, he would lose a small amount of money. If things, if one thing went well, if one press did amazing, he could make a ton of money. Yes. And that's, in, that is, it's, that's such a fucking good example. And then the interesting example that this is where Taleb's actually right and Aristotle's wrong is that Aristotle said, but from his knowledge of astronomy, he had observed while it was still winter that there was going to be a large crop of olives. So Aristotle was assuming that Thales stated reason was superior knowledge. But Taleb says superior knowledge Thales put himself in a position to take advantage of his lack of knowledge. I mean, he's a yes. fucking homeless philosophizer. And the secret property of asymmetry. The key to our message about this upside downside asymmetry is that he did not need to understand too much the messages of the stars. Simply, he had a contract that is the archetype of what it, of what is asymmetry. It was an option. Let me go off the cuff here and go with another uh, ancient philosopher example. Um, this relates to a earlier podcast episode, so stay tuned here. But a good friend of Aristotle, Plato, right? Yeah. He, he thought a lot about politics. And his idea was that the, a democratic system was bad because <clears throat> um, it was, it could be, you could basically have mob rule <clears throat> and that there's no rational reason that a mob, a majority of people, has the right answer. There's no 
There's no rational, logical reasoning behind that. And so what you would ideally need, the best political system would be to be ruled by a philosopher king, mm-hmm. being a powerful and wise, both powerful and wise uh, leader. Um, and that would be the best political system. And what I, th- I, I would think that Taleb would be mad at him. And I, I, I agree. I think he got that wrong because a, a leader of the country, it is, it, that is a very uh, asymmetric situation. Very fragile as well. Asymmetric in the opposite way yeah. of, of, of the great or the olive presses, meaning that a great president or great leader can do like some good mm-hmm. or a terrible leader can wreck the entire yeah. nation. Like nuke those bitches. How dare they? Yeah. So it's like they could do if they're if they're a stellar leader, they could make the country a little better. What about this? No rep can make you, but it sure can break you with lifting. That's absolutely right. So there's this crazy asymmetry. And so the the system that, for example, the United States is based on, it is it is designed around removing bad leaders because and i think it's wise because it takes care of the asymmetry it's like look there's so much more downside than there is potential upside dude and we've already like our risk of ruin is pretty low like it's kind of like our government government's kind of shitty mm-hmm. but like what are the yeah, chances what are the chances that it turns into you know the third reich We're so fucking low what low. are the, what are the chances it gets like way better like kind of low too also low so like you know, we slowly and get better and better and better. And yeah. like, it takes us years and years to realize basic shit like slavery's bad. It, it yeah, but guess, but also to the opposite point, it, it, we realized it. Yeah, and, and it and the only way to do that was like slow incremental progress. And key point, not blowing up. Yes, and Go. fact, it is an option. That's it. That's it. All this that we're talking about, it's an option. The right but not the obligation for the buyer. And of course, the obligation, but not the right for the other party, the seller. So Thales, Thales, Tahilis had the right, but not the obligation to use the olive press in case there was a surge of demand. So he could look at it and be like, huh, yeah, this looks like a shitty uh, shitty crop, so I guess I just wasted my, my wine money for a month. Or it could be the best crop ever, and he could sell it for $80,000. Thales paid a small price for that privilege with a limited loss and large possible outcome. That was the very first option on record. The option is an agent of anti-fragility because anti-fragility equals more to gain than to lose. More upside than downside equals favorable asymmetry equals likes volatility. And if you make more when you are right, then you are hurt when you are wrong then you will benefit in the long run from volatility and you don't really have to know shit. And just like we were talking about the preppers earlier saying that because time equals volatility, that is that took me a while to understand, but before until you once you realize that time equals volatility, the prepper understands that I don't know what's going to happen, but given enough time, there's going to be something bad that happens that works in the opposite situation too if you're asymmetric and anti-fragile on the upside, then you can say, look, I don't know what's going to happen, but given enough time, given enough volatility, same thing, something's good is going to happen. Dude, exactly. And so this could be like a formal financial option, like a call and a put and stuff, but but it's the principle here. Because apparently there's a lot of research that shows like formal options are not always a good 
good deal. Like, don't buy them, so apparently. I don't really buy them. On average. On average. But um, this is the, the principle here. So exactly what you just said. So I, I bought four altcoins, um, which are so like Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. There's all these different currencies. And I started, I, I knew nothing. And I started, like legitimately, nothing. And I started with the assumption that Coinbase, and this is not financial advice, don't do this, but I started with the assumption that Coinbase is going to grow a lot. When people go and look for it, Coinbase has a trusted name. They're about to go public. There's a lot of people that are going to join Coinbase. $100 billion company. Yeah. Okay. My next thing is that Bitcoin is probably not going to be zero in the next five years. If Bitcoin is not zero in the next five years, people are going to be investing in it, including institutions. If institutions are investing in it, these institutions are steeped in the idea of modern portfolio theory and diversification, along with retail investors who'll be clamoring for other options. People are going to be very unsophisticated, and they are going to want to diversify into other cryptocurrencies. So I look at Coinbase. Everybody's going to Coinbase. Everybody's going to want to diversify. I just picked four coins that were the top that Coinbase offered. And I bought $250 of each of them. Did you get like Ethereum, Chainlink? Yep. Uh, what else? Mm, see, this is, I like clearly I'm just doing options Tax here. Tax gold. No, file it was um, Cardano. XL. XRP? I bought XRP right Oh, at, God. I bought that on purpose because they got sued by the SEC. Oh, yeah. I was like, that's the SEC scandal. Yeah. yeah. Um, Go. But the, but the summary is that I bought those all super cheaply. And, and it already, you know, $250, all of them turned into $350 and I sold a hundred bucks from each of them. Not in any way to say that I'm some smart person, just that I'm trying to set up a structure where I don't need to know anything, but I, I believe, and, and maybe, maybe even one of those is actually real. Maybe it's going to actually turn into something, but I think there's enough mass behind it that I don't even need to know anything. And I'm setting myself up where, you know, what's the worst case that happens? I've limited my downside at $1,000. What's the best thing that happens? Well, if you bought Bitcoin in like 2013 for like eight bucks, you know, you're now, I mean, you could be a millionaire. You bought an island. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the, that is, that is the option. Bought cheaply, potential large, large upside. And Taleb is, is helping us because this, this is a super important concept. He says the option that he's talking about is no different than what we call options in daily life. You know, the vacation resort with more, with more options is more likely to provide you with the activity that satisfies your taste. The one with narrows choices is likely to fail. So you actually just need less information. So with, with no knowledge, if you pick a random basket of five products, and you had to pick, is it more likely that you'll find them on Amazon.com or Target.com? What would you say? Amazon. Clearly. You don't even need to know anything. You just know that Amazon has a lot more optionality than Target.com. And that's the point. And uh, Thales, so the episode, Enlightening Thales, Tales, Tales, about his own choices in life, how genuine his pursuit of philosophy was, was because he had other options. So after he made that money and he went back to philosophizing, he had other options. And it is worth repeating, options, any option, by allowing you more upside than downside are vectors of anti-fragility. And there's a, I was listening to a podcast um, with Uriah Faber. You know him? Nope. 
Okay, he's a MMA fighter. California kid. The biggest butt chin I've ever seen. He's nope. retired now. But he was doing he was talking about negotiating with Joe Rogan and he was like Joe Rogan apparently said, "Dude, this isn't about money for me, man. I just want to get this set up. The thing about ha- the point of having fuck you money is that you can tell people to fuck off." Yeah. And I realized that's an option. If you have if you have fuck you money, you have so much more optionality because you only do things that you want to do. Like Taleb, he had zero in his mind, zero consideration of the consequences when he shouted at 2,000 Koreans on episode two. Yeah, what's the downside? He gets fired? Oh, wait. Actually, the downside is he sells more books. He's got two ways to win and no way to lose. It's, I mean, brilliant. Okay, now I have here. Do you have any examples of real life options? Dude, yeah. Go. Easy, no, easy, obvious one. Save up cash. What can you buy with cash? Guess what? anything so you don't know what you're going to need in the future all kinds of problems maybe like a vr headset to play shooters on you're going to need a vr headset your cow needs medicine you need a new pair of shoes you need to go get a new college degree because it becomes necessary your house burns down and now you need a new house i don't know you need to go to the dentist those are all problems that can be solved with the same option or the the same asset and the thing is you you actually don't need like it'd be better to be stupid and anti-fragile. And it'd be it'd be better to be actually you can't even read. And yeah. You have eighty thousand dollars of cash. They win. Than to be this amazing predictor. Yeah. And have eight hundred bucks. Oh. Because then yeah. when your car blows up, you know the guy who's drooling. Yeah. In the tow truck, he tows his car and he goes to the Audi. He like tow me to the Audi dealership. Yeah. And then a new car. <laughs> and then they he buys this fifty thousand dollar you know audi a6 goes about his life and then the philosopher he's like oh, just so unfair just on average my car doesn't usually blow yeah. up like that so that's one option here's another option uh people uh, pe- musicians who re- record music and put it on the internet most of their music goes unheard every now and then one of their songs blows up and that's all they needed that's the only thing they needed meaning the worst that happens is they spend the time and resources to make one song best thing that happens is their life gets changed forever in a good way and so that's another and that could be not just music that can be writing that could be making a podcast that could be networking meeting more people who are who are in fields and areas that you would want to work in dude There's, can i tell you a crazy option go that happened on my last podcast yes so I most recently covered, and if, if you're a true priest, you know this, and thank you so much. I love you. Leave me a review. <laughs> um, I uh, covered the Hagakure, the Samurai Manual of Bushido. And I had this translation before that was from 1970 from this guy, you know, frumpy little hair. Looks like he's never been hit in the face once. And, you know, I read it, I read it uh, three or four years ago, and it was, you know, like I barely could understand it. Because like this guy was just translating the, the words. And yeah. so I called out to Amazon and I'm like, please, I need to find a better translation. And lo and behold, I found Alexander Bennett, who's just like the hardest man that's ever lived. He's okay. like a seventh degree black belt in kendo, fifth degree black belt in the related martial art of kendo of drawing your sword really fast. He's a fifth degree <laughs> black belt in bayonet fighting. <laughs> and yes. he's a third degree black belt in the sword spear. And uh, and has a PhD in Bushido. Yeah, Amazing. no fucking, no big deal. No big deal. And so this translation was so fucking good. And I prepped so much. And it was, the podcast turned out really well, I thought. And so I took the option. I invested, I don't know, eight minutes. 
and I emailed him. I found his like work email at because he works at the university in some university in Japan. And then I found him on Facebook and I messaged him and took like a week and a half or whatever. And then he responded back. And he's like, hey, thanks, mate. I'll listen to it. Well, this looks great. And I knew because I just read his awesome book that we're all just trying to be kusemono, which is this Japanese word for like the ideal warrior. So I replied back to him like, no worries, man. I'm just trying to be a kusemono over here. Ooh. And he's like, me too. Then <laughs> he listened to the podcast and he listened to it three times, he said. And he posted about it on his Facebook. Dude. And then he listened to all three episodes and then like said it was so great. And I first of all, I was just like, dude, I'm going to cry. This is awesome. But like that's a micro example of what is the, the payoff, like the asymmetric payoff of that. Right. That eight minute effort, you know, it paid off for like, I don't know, 50 likes and I got the most listens I've ever had on that episode. Yeah. But that's a microcosm, you know, no offense, Alexander the Great, but you know, he's just some obscure little translator. But what if that principle happened with Taleb or with The Rock? Yep. You know, it'd be the same eight minutes that turns into, I don't know, now I have a podcast that people care about. One of the people that I work with literally had that happen to her with The Rock. Yeah. That same exact story, but with The Rock. And it's like, this is the point being that, that, those optionalities that you got you get retweeted or commented by or responded to by these famous authors and it's awesome and i'll give you one more example if you're any kind of before i leave some brain so but like the so the the thing is it's not even like to find the best way to manage your email list and you don't know to be on youtube and to be totally secured away in your internet marketing it's like to have an anti-fragile system and have time yes I heard, yes, yes, set yourself, the most important thing you can do is put yourself in an anti-fragile position and then- And then time is the greatest volatility. And like, yeah, you should be smart. Like I'm recently, as you guys have maybe seen, I just have a stupid ass picture and I'm posting just the audio on YouTube, just thinking like maybe that'll help with search engine optimization, whatever. I don't know. But like- Doesn't hurt. You want to try to do as best as you can in the various arenas, like try your best, but then like, dude- just time like what if what if spotify says next year i want to invest 50 billion dollars into podcasts and then they contact all the people who have podcasts that have been consistently putting out content for over a year and then they're exactly like, they're like hey you know we'll one, pay you now have an income one hundred grand you're like yes and, and, and one more example like, no <laughs> one more example that's like really really practical some of the worst advice i ever heard in my entire life as it is if you're a freelancer you should value your work and never work for free i think that's absolute garbage advice why the most important is starting out the most important thing that you have is the most important asset that you have if you're a freelancer i don't care if you're a carpenter or a videographer or a painter or a graphic designer whatever um the most important things you have are skills and network and, and portfolio portfolio, portfolio. Yes. the optionality comes in to play when you say, hey, I'm gonna go get this client. I can get them if I do work for free. The reason it's it's asymmetric antifragile is because that one piece of work that you make can be used with a thousand clients. Mm-hmm. But you just did the work one time. And so the more if you do free work, especially front load it, you end up with a portfolio that can get you a hundred times the work you put in. Yeah. It's the best position to be in ever. Dude. And that's what I exactly what I did. And guess what it worked? 
and we're gonna hammer this optionality thing because this is one of those this is one of those like when you learn the 80 20 principle you know you don't even clean your house the same way <laughs> um so Taleb brings an example of rent controlled apartments okay Uh-oh. so there's there's some very good research that like rent controlled apartments on the aggregate are fucking horrible because you know like it leaves, maybe it'll work next time it, imagine you imagine you go buy a car and they're like well actually we're having two for one sale you know i know you're prepared to spend twenty four thousand dollars on a honda accord but you want two of them and you'd be like yeah and that's what happens with rent controlled apartments because it's artificially low lower the market value and people are just like fuck yeah so it's half price and like what you thought was going to be like the, the mom now has a place to live. It's more like the investor now has five of them. But if you're the person, assume that you live in a rent-controlled apartment. So basically what that means is that you have the option of staying in it, but no obligation, but the owner has the obligation of keeping your rent at a certain amount. And so you're in such an anti-fragile position because let's say that rents go way up. Okay, well, your rent doesn't go up because they have the obligation to charge you $1,000. And if it goes down, and you're better off too. And let's say instead, of, let's say now it goes way down. And so instead, now you're overpaying by $400. Well, you just give them notice and you leave. And you move. Yeah. So you win if the rents go down and you win if, or at least you're not affected if they go up. You're in a great position. That is optionality. The position... Options don't care about averages. They care about what actually happening happens. Yeah, I, I didn't realize this for a while, but and we've talked about it maybe briefly, but it's like, I almost think that your portfolio... It's like your portfolio allocation, the position you're in and what you're exposed to is like vastly more important than the individual things you invest in. Like the exposure you have to different types of assets, way more important than what you specifically buy. Yeah. I think that's like, I think ultimately what you specifically buy is what's going to blow up, but like you can't predict what that's going to be. So if you're exposed to a lot of different things, one of them is going to be the specific one, but like you have to have a specific one. But also like if you have it, meaning the, 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 the construction of it is way more important because like, let's say you pick the perfect stock, but it's 1% of your portfolio, it's not going to do much. Or let's say you you have really conservative, you know, like U.S. Treasuries and bonds, but it's only two percent of your portfolio. Well, it doesn't really like. And then you yeah. put ninety eight in GameStop, and then you're sad. Exactly. <laughs> so, options. The crazy thing about options, though, is is you don't have to be right that often, and you don't have to even, even be smart. Like you could actually take a dog and put them in that rent controlled apartment, and as long as you know, like you, you somehow like you forge the dog's signature. That dog could w- would actually be better at like managing their living expenses than like a genius in a crazy real estate market that's not that does not have that optionality. So some people don't know this, but some of the I'll give you three examples of uh, some of the best, um, most influential people in the arts or or the creative world uh, uh, ever, and they uh, influ- uh, they use this strategy completely. So. Uh, Isaac Asimov, famous uh, mm, yeah. science fiction uh, science fiction author. I actually didn't like his books that much, but I respect him. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, but he he was no one can argue he's not a successful science fiction exactly. author. Exactly. 
And he has published like over something like 300 published novels. Yeah. Like that's an order of magnitude higher than any other offer. That, author. That's, that's more than like people don't even think that that's a possibility. If you had three novels, it's like, wow, you did a lot of writing. Yeah. 300 is like, that doesn't even make sense. But I, people talk to him and they're like, what do you, how do you do this, Isaac Asimov? Like, how do you pull this off? He's like, well, it's simple. I get up at 6 a.m. I get coffee. I go sit down on my, my computer and I type until noon. And then I stop and then I go to work and then I go to sleep and I wake up the next day and I sit down at the computer and I type until noon and then I stop. He was employing, he was like, I don't care. His point was, I don't care what I write. I just type. And if I do that every day, I end up with good writing. Yeah. Because you can reject the bad stuff, but you get to keep the good stuff. And he had so many options that he had, he had so much bad, he had so many good options that like he could write 300 books that were published. Same thing with, um, right. Because if he start, if he wrote, actually wrote 900, if he had 900 options to pick from, yeah, well, it's, you know, a third of them, 300. Yeah. Most people write good. People write six books. And if they have three great novels, yeah, then they're a genius. He wrote a thousand yeah. and published 300. And so it's the same with, I won't go into it, but like, um, Picasso, the artist painter, and uh, Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. People don't understand how... Or the band Rammstein. Or that. People don't understand how prolific they were. Like, take someone who does a lot and multiply it by 10. You know, Bach made a new 20-minute piece of music every week for, like, 60 years. Like, it's something just... Like, an album's worth of music a week for 60 years. Picasso painted, like, multiple paintings a day until he was 94. Like... It, people don't, and now they have you know four uh, pieces of their work are played a lot, but they had th- tens of thousands of published works. Damn! So they had the most options, and they were the most successful artists of all time. And one of those options could have that non-lottery ticket effect. Yeah, it could go viral, and it could bring it, did. it could bring credibility to every single one of them. And then now you've got this just just portfolio of a thousand things worth a million dollars yes and a thousand times a million is a lot w- one of one of their pieces is worth a hundred million and the rest are only worth one million yeah yeah so we got to just keep hammering this shit trial and error yes. so trial and error is a form of optionality trial and error is small tinkering that has small errors and large gains and this idea is very present in california uh, voiced by steve jobs at a famous speech that says stay hungry stay foolish and Taleb says he probably meant be crazy, but retain the rationality of choosing the upper bound when you see it. Any trial and error can be seen as the expression of an option, so long, so long as one is capable of identifying a favorable result and exploiting it, as we will see next. Yes, I, just to summarize all of that, I, there's a phrase I heard recently. Someone said, the music composer's waste basket, basket should be full, meaning... Uh. As they're writing out music, it's like they should have just a pile of trash. Yeah. Other, other. It's not the myth is you sit down and you're a genius, and the geniuses what they do is since they're so smart, they sit down and write the perfect thing, and they go give it to the world, and they're like, look how great I am, and everyone loves it. Complete myth. The geniuses most of the time are, oh no no no, they had one great work out of a thousand tries. Hmm. That's interesting, dude. And and no I, one remembers the 999. I've been doing that approach at work. So like I'm trying to figure out a new thing. Like I'm trying to figure out going out and doing outbound marketing to get people interested to book meetings. And so 
Uh, it's super hard, and like the first the first five campaigns, I just publicly sucked the dick. Like I just publicly did horrible. Yeah, and so horrible on a couple of them that I didn't even like learn any lessons. And Amazing. I'm like, like mm, <laughs> damn it. The only lesson I learned here is I suck. Well, you learned what not to do. No, I didn't even. Well, well, exactly. But like which parts of what not to do, like not to do it in English. Like that's probably not true. Yeah. So, but then I've just been like just hammering my fucking face into the wall, like trying everything, trying different things. And I finally have like, like a fucking dog, just like sit, I'll give you a treat, sit, I'll give you a treat. Like I have figured out some things that I'm kind of confident are true. And, uh, it's exactly this. It's this trial and error that it's like, okay, well that didn't work. Ooh, that like worked a small amount. And then you just try a little bit differently and like, Oh, that worked a little bit more. That worked a little bit more. Yeah. You can substitute intelligence for trial and error. Totally. And the formula of an option, he says to crystallize, take this description of an option. Option equals asymmetry plus rationality. Yeah. You have to select Exactly. So the rationality part lies in keeping what is good and ditching the bad. Holy shit. Kind of like Musashi said, the art of not having an art. Taking only what works, discarding the rest, being completely open-minded, having no preferences, fighting with two swords when convention says not to, but experience using two drums suggests there might be a better way. Holy shit, I'm going to throw up. This is amazing that it took Taleb and all of us this long to come up with the answer that has been staring at us from Mother Nature for millennia. And Musashi. And, well, even, it's no offense, Musashi, but Mother Nature's been around even longer than you. No. Okay, sorry. He invented Mother Nature. <laughs> Take yes, it back. Correct. Take it back. Take it back. <laughs> okay, but, go on. But yeah, Mother Nature creates random variations, and the selection is survival. And so you need random variations plus selection. In Mother Nature's case, it's fitness for an environment. In our case, it's whatever our reaction that we're looking for in whatever work we're doing. And it's the same thing. Dude, and in options many times, you know, if we were just in mediocristan, options would not be nearly worth as much. But since we're in extremistan, oh, yeah. buying GameStop stock at $30, that's a life-changing thing. Since we are in the world where wild and crazy shit happens and options are the thing that they're the fire and wild and crazy shit is the wind options become extremely important and that's the thing that's the non-lottery tickets on average any random stock isn't going to do anything but you limit your downside on the left side of the barbell then collect cheap non-lottery tickets low cost high reward potential so you know bitcoin um we talked about it but messaging the author after a podcast venture capital starting a a side hustle insane okay so as we close down this episode and i think we might we have one more we got one more we got one more hang in there folks we got this this is important you can do this so he, he explains an example so he draws the contrast between a wheeled suitcase and the day when he had to carry his suitcase and he said that sometimes creation and innovation it doesn't happen like this linear laboratory sort of way it happens with people combining two things with trial and error there's been the wheel forever there's been suitcases forever all it took was putting those two options together and then you're a billionaire exactly (laughs) because options are a substitute for knowledge say that again 
So options are a substitute for knowledge. Yes. <laughs> hey, man. Good. Hallelujah. Yeah. But it's it's sneaky. Uh, you know, there's something sneaky about the process of discovery and implement of implementation, uh, something people usually call evolution. Um, so there are these just small or accidental changes, more accidents, uh, then, you know, then something crazy happens. So th- think about like the, I don't know, uh, the smallpox vaccine. So, you know, you're hanging out with all the milkmaids and all you notice is they got real strong hands and they don't have smallpox. And you're like, hmm. but it's not like you do this fucking study. It's trial and error. It's options. And as we saw with the story of fails and the wheel, anti-fragility thanks to the asymmetry effects of trial and error, supersedes intelligence. And this is heartening to me because sometimes I feel like I am slow as fuck to learn shit. The good news is that what he's implying is that the world is so crazy, the world is so complicated, that let's say you were three times smarter than you are now. I think he's implying that still, the world's so complex, there's no way you'd be able to know exactly what to do. Therefore, what is your only option left? Well, at any time, any day, despite your intelligence, you can create options. You can do trial and error. Anyone can do that. And that, when given enough time, can just be a substitute for intelligence. So the path of trying to be smart enough to guess the exact right answer is futile. Dude, can I close out with a story? Yes. So you remember this, but remember when I was a financial advisor, we were were meeting at Buffalo Wild Wings Yes. and um, I was in that position where I was realizing that I was about six months away from a permanent purgatory of suit wearing $50,000 a year analyst job forever or go start my own financial advising business. But bitch, if I'm going to start a business, it's not going to be that one. Yeah. And I was like, what do I do? And I arrived at the solution. Well, I joined this service club and everybody's got lots of money and I am going to grab coffee with all 300 of the members. And my thought process was maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe I'll find a $10 million account and I will not be sentenced to purgatory. But probably I'll just get hella good at interpersonal communication. And so I did for six months. I probably had 250 coffees, which is crazy. But now I am able to have deep conversations with any stranger. And that option, that 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 option that I've got now, that, that might be the key to my next job that turns into $700 million. Yep. And that's what he's saying. You know, it's not, you don't try to have this specific plan, this intelligence. It's if you have... It's like the talent stack. Like if you have a, an option, if you happen to be good at meeting people, making them feel comfortable, talking about it, not having a weird conversation, but just like, hey, look, we're people. Let's talk about it. Then that can be applied in a thousand other way, other ways. Yeah, skill skills are scalable in the way, in a sense that if you learn one skill, it takes you the time to learn one skill, but that can be used for a thousand people there's a huge asymmetry. You don't have to learn a thousand new skills to serve a thousand people. If you learn one new skill that can be used over and over and over and over again, and that's just going to increase your odds. So I think that's asymmetrical learning new skills. And the last thing before we close out this year episode, is we're going to talk about shipwreck guy, Greg Stem. So this guy, he uses trial and error to find rare lost ships. Oh yeah. But what he does 
is he does it Taleb approved style. Ooh. So he goes out. He he does you know some models and some maps of probability of what he where he thinks the ship's going to be, and then he drills. And then he says, "Oh, it's not there." Then he recalibrates based on his new data, and he says, "Oh, okay. Well, now I think the next highest probability is it's going to be here, not there." Recalibrates. I think the next highest probability is it's going to be here, not there. Recalibrates. But each successive time, the benefit of rational so options are anti anti fragility plus being rational about it is each time he gets closer and closer and closer to the billion dollar shipwreck thanks to optionality it becomes tamed and harvested randomness yeah if you have 10 squares of area that you can go search we have a one out of 10 chance of guessing or guessing it right the first time the next time you have a one out of nine chance it just gets better but and so as we close out this episode let us remember that you don't even need to be smart you can be a fucking dog if you have good enough options thank you get you some options thank you very much and that's my pretties is another episode down of the curiously disagreeable podcast check us out at curiouslydisagreeable.com the troy hollings on instagram or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts the end